0: Each individual's grief process is unique. When confronted with the death of a loved one, most people experience transient rather than persistent distress and do not develop a mental health condition. However, up to 10% of people experience a more prolonged and distressing response to bereavement. This week, the BMJ have published a practice pointer on this topic of disturbed grief, more commonly described clinically as either prolonged grief disorder or persistent complex bereavement disorder. I'm Kate Adlington, clinical editor at the BMJ and trainee psychiatrist, and I'm joined today by the authors of this article, Dr. Paul Boulen, Professor of Clinical Psychology at Utrecht University, and Dr. Hirt Smit, a psychiatrist and senior researcher at the Dutch National Psychotrauma Centre. Hello, Paul. Hello. And welcome, Heart.
1: Thank you, hello.
0: Thank you very much both for joining us. What is disturbed grief and how how does it differ from normal, I'm saying normal sort of inverted commas, but n- a normal grief process? Paul, maybe, maybe you could answer that one.
2: Well, that's a very important question. I think disturbed grief is characterized by... In fact, normal normal acute grief getting chronic or uh, normal symptoms or reactions of grief worsening and getting more intense rather than gradually reducing over time as usually happens. So it's actually a stagnation or, or normal grief becoming chronic, that's how you could characterize disturbed grief.
0: Helpfully, in the article you describe sort of different types of symptoms or Experiences that people might describe, and you sort of separate them into separation distress and then other symptoms. So perhaps could could you give some examples of the symptoms they might um, describe?
2: So what characterizes separation distress? Those are actually the acute grief symptoms, such as the intense yearning and longing, and also experiences of disbelief about the irreversibility of the loss and Uh, severe pain and sadness. Those are all normal responses to loss, but in prolonged grief and in persistent complex bereavement disorder, these particular symptoms uh, continue to persist over time, causing severe distress and disability. And uh, on the other hand, the symptoms of traumatic distress are uh, or do resemble a bit symptoms that we know from post-traumatic stress disorder. So, for instance, these include intrusive recollections of particular circumstances surrounding the loss um, or particular feelings of anxiety associated with these circumstances. So, yeah, these traumatic distress reactions resemble what we in 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 the aftermath of uh, uh, other forms of stressful life events Reco- recollections anxiety hypervigilance for instance mm.
0: and and you mentioned it's this persistence that really separates separates it out from kind of a normal the kind of accepted acute grief reaction um, and and what sort of time frames are we thinking of when you you should be more concerned
1: well after 12 months Um, If the symptoms of separation distress really persist and are really incapacitating the patient, really having an impact on his life, um, causing impairment, then then I think the clinician uh, uh, should consider such a diagnosis. But even before that, when there's, for example, suicidal ideation. Or major role impairment, or really substantial clinical worsening, those could be um, well reasons to consider treatment uh, earlier. Of course, um, there's some disagreement about what is the best thre- the, the best criterion for symptom duration. Uh, for example, the ICD uh, requires only six months to have passed before a diagnosis can be made, whereas the DSM for adults uh, requires 12 months uh, before a, a diagnosis of uh, what they call persistent complex bereavement disorder can be made.
0: Mm. Yes, it's, it's interesting that there are, is this difference in uh, sort of definitions from the different classificatory bodies. I suppose, what's your kind of practical advice to clinicians about how to use each of those and practically kind of what's what's the best thing to do when when you've got a patient in front of you which of these should you use or how should you how should you navigate these differences
1: yeah these different differences can can be a bit confusing but i think it's most helpful when the clinician, as much as possible, ignores the differences because they are only slight, and actually treat the two definitions as, as just one definition. Um, the, the major thing is this time frame, this, this symptom duration criterion, There really the clinician should use clinical judgment and really take into account, well, is there risk like a suicide risk or is there major role impairment that really requires treatment to separate the normal from the disturbed.
0: How might um, healthcare professionals identify um, people who might be at increased risk of developing disturbed grief?
2: Well in terms of risk factors you can Distinguish between different categories. So, for instance, uh, um, in terms of socio demographic um, uh, risk factors, lower levels of education is an important uh, uh, risk factor, low lower socio ec- economic status. In terms of loss related risk factors, the sudden loss of a loved one, and particularly the violent, unnatural sudden loss of a loved one. Uh, um, is uh, renders a person prone to uh, more severe grief. Uh, and another category one can distinguish is in terms of personality variables. So, pr- for instance, people who are uh, less security or more insecurely attached, uh, and people who are, have been, prior to the loss, already vulnerable to psychological disorders. They are also at a relatively increased risk of Getting PGD or PCBD,
0: and and it's interesting because you bring up the expectations in that particular person's community as well. So, so the context of their, you know, cultural, you know, and culture and religion are important as well.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So that is, if the clinician is in doubt whether something is normal with respect to a person's culture or community, then it is of course very helpful when when he asks the patient, would this be considered normal by your, well, family members or friends? Or even the clinician could invite uh, family members or friends to discuss this, whether, well, is is the grief reaction still what one would expect or consider normal within the culture? I think this is really an important point
0: you mention and and it's something certainly that is familiar to me that previously there was this sort of concept and that people go through quite a linear um process and kind of linear stages of grief kind of moving from one to the next in a particular order and actually that that's a little bit seemed to be slightly outdated now and and there's one kind of newer way of trying to think about sort of the grief process or experience of grief is the grief task model could you sort of tell us a little bit more what what this is and how it might be useful for both doctors and for patients
2: um <clears throat> yes what is what is so wonderfully nice about the grief task model is, is that it's much less normative than earlier linear type of models so the grief task model uh, basically proposes that uh a person following the loss of a loved one, it's important to try to achieve four particular tasks in order to recover from the loss. And um, one crucial task is to accept the reality of the loss. And uh, that means that it's, it's critical that the person does not avoid to confront and think about what actually happened. And that it's important that the person understands and realizes that the loss. Is actually irreversible. That's uh, a first task. I, I, we think it's a critical task as well. Um, another task is to process the pain of the grief. Uh, this does not imply that there is a particular amount or intensity of pain or particular pre-described emotions that should be processed, but this uh, task holds that, that it's important that people Um, are aware of and and express and share the pain that for them is associated with the loss. So it's the sadness, the guilt, the anger, or other uh, feelings that can be associated with the loss. And that it's critical not to avoid and to suppress the pain. There are two other tasks that the model specifies. To adjust
1: to a world without the disease, that's obviously a task that every grieving person faces and then to find an enduring connection with the deceased in the midst of embarking on a new life. So this is really like redefining the relationship to the deceased who is not there any longer and who won't return. So I think this model really beautifully illustrates um, that every grieving person has to go through certain tasks and it also explains that the pain of grief is normal and that, that time is needed to process it.
0: It's really, really interesting and there you are starting to touch on, I suppose, the options for supporting people who have had traumatic losses or who are experiencing kind of pro- prolonged and disturbed grief. What, what are the different options um, that can be offered in these circumstances?
2: Well, when it um, comes down to psychological treatments, um, in the last 10 years or so, several studies have been done and which have mostly focused on the effects of cognitive behavioral interventions for uh, disturbed grief. So there are now several studies which have supported the helpfulness of cognitive behavioral interventions, interventions that mostly focus on trying to disentangle and identify the the particular meaning that a loss has to a person and trying to identify uh, cognitions that may um, have maladaptive effects. For instance, when people are convinced that life no longer has meaning or that they are no longer of any meaning or usefulness to anybody anymore or people who are very pessimistic about their future, those types of meanings and cognitions actually uh, blocked the grieving process. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, you try to identify such beliefs and try to alter them, discuss them. And one other thing is um, that you try to help people to, well, actually in terms of the task model, to adjust to a world without the disease. So for instance, you try to identify valued activities and valued goals in social, recreational, and educational areas. So you try to help people to re-engage with life again in order to achieve the task of adjustment and incorporating the pain of the loss into their everyday lives. And there's now increasing evidence that this type of cognitive behavioral interventions are very helpful. and working for instance with refugees or other ethnic minorities it's of course very important to um, be sensitive to the cultural backgrounds and not to uh, well to to, uh, adjust your way of going about with changing cognitions uh, contextualizing that in a cultural uh, framework.
0: Mm. How, How about other interventions? Is there any evidence for for example pharmacological interventions in actual tr- actually treating um, disturbed or persistent grief
1: there are some uh, some studies um, um, that are also summarized in in, in the article um, who who do show that that's Treatment using antidepressants SSRI uh, antidepressants, for example, but also tricyclic antidepressants have been studied. They are useful to reduce both grief symptoms and especially uh, depressive symptoms uh, um, when when after following the loss of a loved one. Um, so I think this this evidence. Um, helps us to consider this treatment um, but but I think uh, psychotherapy um, should be considered first uh, but also of course patient's preference uh, plays a role mm.
0: and, and I suppose that um, touches on you mentioned there kind of the fact that antidepressants w- will treat depressive symptoms kind of how cautious do you um, uh, doctors healthcare professionals have to be about um the coexistence of other mental health disorders and and for example the risk of you know miss missing a, a depression that they might think is a, you know a complicated grief or prolonged grief disorder or vice versa
1: yeah well i think prolonged grief and depression um they are distinct but the overlap is also uh, huge so Um, every clinician should be aware of of, uh, the the possibility of depression so when when, for example a grieving person expresses this wish to be reunited with the lost loved one um, this could also turn into suicidal thoughts so I think clinicians should always be aware of uh, suicidality and explore suicidality uh, uh, from the start and of course also when there's like this substantial clinical worsening um well a super a superimposed depression i would say um could could cause this so so i think clinicians should always be aware that depression and prolonged grief um well may co-occur
0: and and finally you you mention um in the article that there is some controversy debate about the classification and 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 medicalization really of grief um, can can you tell us a little more about what these perhaps cha- um, challenges are or um, or the co- this controversy is about
2: it's very understandable that it's um uh, also controversial to have a disorder of grief included in in, in d s m and i c d um and and that it, it elicits um elicits a worry that normal grief will be labeled as disturbed grief or will be medicalized. Um, and I, I think it's a very understandable worry, but it's important to note that it's not specific to grief. We, I think, or we think should always be very cautious and in in labeling uh, someone with a psychiatric disorder unless we've done uh, um, adequate uh, a structural interview, an adequate uh, clinical um, interviewing. Um, so it stresses the importance of carefully checking for symptoms and the duration of symptoms and the degree of disability it causes and the cultural context, So all these things should be taken into account before we label someone with PGD or PCBD. So it's it's an understandable worry, but I think or, or we think with um, it, it's it's having these criteria actually helps to make a much clearer distinction between people who are. Recovering quite well from their loss and people who may be in need of extra help in the aftermath of their loss, so uh, having these clear descriptions of PGD and PCBD helps actually also to, well, um, to, to normalize disturbed grief, but also to um, not label people with a diagnosis when they're actually grieving quite normal. So the worries are understandable, but. Uh, no reasons not to have these particular diagnoses, in our view well
0: thank you both for joining us for incredibly interesting discussion
2: thank you very much too thank you very much was a nice opportunity thank you too my pleasure
0: the article we've been discussing a practice pointer on disturbed grief prolonged grief disorder and persistent complex bereavement disorder is now available on bmj.com subscribe to us on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts from You can find our full back catalogue on SoundCloud. Just search for the BMJ podcast. Thank you very much for listening.